Section 10 of The Luck of Roaring Camp and Other Sketches. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The Luck of Roaring Camp and Other Sketches by Bret Hart. Chapter 10 Melis, Part 1. Just where the Sierra Nevada begins to subside in gentler undulations, and the rivers grow less rapid and yellow, on the side of a great red mountain, stands Smith's Pocket. Seen from the red road at sunset, in the red light and the red dust, its white houses look like the outcroppings of quartz on the mountainside. The red stage, topped with red-shirted passengers, is lost to view half a dozen times in the torturous descent, turning up unexpectedly in out-of-the-way places, and vanishing altogether within a hundred yards of the town. It is probably owing to this sudden twist in the road that the advent of a stranger at Smith's pocket is usually attended with a peculiar circumstance. Dismounting from the vehicle at the stage office, the too-confident traveller is apt to walk straight out of town under the impression that it lies in quite another direction. It is related that one of the tunnel-men, two miles from town, met one of these self-reliant passengers with a carpet-bag, umbrella, Harper's magazine, and other evidences of civilization and refinement, plodding along over the road he had just ridden, vainly endeavouring to find the settlement of Smith's pocket. An observant traveller might have found some compensation for his disappointment in the weird aspect of that vicinity. There were huge fissures on the hillside and displacements of the red soil, resembling more the chaos of some primary elemental upheaval than the work of man while halfway down a long flume straddled its narrow body and disproportionate legs over the chasm like an enormous fossil of some forgotten antediluvian at every step smaller ditches crossed the road hiding in their sallow depths unlovely streams that crept away to a clandestine union with the great yellow torrent below and here and there were the ruins of some cabin with the chimney alone left intact and the hearthstone open to the skies. The settlement of Smith's Pocket owed its origin to the finding of a pocket on its site by a veritable Smith. Five thousand dollars were taken out of it in one half hour by Smith. Three thousand dollars were expended by Smith and others in erecting a flume and in tunneling and then Smith's pocket was found to be only a pocket, and subject, like other pockets, to depletion. Although Smith pierced the bowels of the great red mountain, that five thousand dollars was the first and last return of his labor. The mountain grew reticent of its golden secrets, and the flume steadily ebbed away the remainder of Smith's fortune. Then Smith went into quartz mining then into quartz milling, then into hydraulics and ditching, and then by easy degrees into saloon-keeping. Presently it was whispered that Smith was drinking a great deal, 
then it was known that smith was a habitual drunkard and then people began to think as they are apt to that he had never been anything else but the settlement of smith's pocket like that of most discoveries was happily not dependent on the fortune of its pioneer and other parties projected tunnels and found pockets so smith's pocket became a settlement with its two fancy stores its two hotels its one express office and its two first families occasionally its one long straggling street was overawed by the assumption of the latest san francisco fashions imported per express exclusively to the first families making outraged nature in the ragged outline of her furrowed surface look still more homely and putting personal insult on that greater portion of the population to whom the sabbath with a change of linen brought merely the necessity of cleanliness without the luxury of adornment then there was a methodist church and hard by a montebank and a little beyond on the mountain-side a graveyard and then a little schoolhouse the master as he was known to his little flock sat alone one night in the schoolhouse with some open copy-books before him carefully making those bold and full characters which are supposed to combine the extremes of chirographical and moral excellence and had got as far as riches are deceitful and was elaborating the noun with an insincerity of flourish that was quite in the spirit of his text when he heard a gentle tapping the woodpeckers had been busy about the roof during the day and the noise did not disturb his work but the opening of the door and the tapping continuing from the inside caused him to look up he was slightly startled by the figure of a young girl dirty and shabbily clad still her great black eyes her coarse uncombed lustreless black hair falling over her sunburned face her red arms and feet streaked with the red soil were all familiar to him it was melissa smith smith's motherless child what can she want here thought the master everybody knew melis as she was called throughout the length and height of red mountain everybody knew her as an incorrigible girl her fierce ungovernable disposition her mad freaks and lawless character were in their way as proverbial as the story of her father's weaknesses and as philosophically accepted by the townsfolk she wrangled with and fought the schoolboys with keener invective and quite as powerful arm she followed the trails with a woodsman's craft and the master had met her before miles away shoeless stockingless and bareheaded on the mountain road the miners camps along the stream supplied her with subsistence during these voluntary pilgrimages in freely offered alms not but that a larger protection had been previously extended to melis the rev joshua mcsnagley stated preacher had placed her in the hotel as servant by way of preliminary refinement and had introduced her to his scholars at sunday school but she threw plates occasionally at the landlord and quickly retorted to the cheap witticisms of the guests 
and created in the Sabbath school a sensation that was so inimical to the orthodox dullness and placidity of that institution that with a decent regard for the starched frocks and unblemished morals of the two pink-and-white-faced children of the first families the reverend gentleman had her ignominiously expelled such were the antecedents and such the character of melis as she stood before the master it was shown in the ragged dress the unkempt hair the bleeding feet and asked his pity it flashed from her black fearless eyes and commanded his respect i come here to-night she said rapidly and boldly keeping her hard glance on his because i knew you was alone i wouldn't come here when them gals was here i hate em and they hates me that's why you keep school don't you i want to be teached if to the shabbiness of her apparel and uncomeliness of her tangled hair and dirty face she had added the humility of tears the master would have extended to her the usual moiety of pity and nothing more but with the natural though illogical instincts of his species her boldness awakened in him something of that respect which all original natures pay unconsciously to one another in any grade and he gazed at her the more fixedly as she went on still rapidly her hand on that door-latch and her eyes on his my name's melis melis smith you can bet your life on that my father's old smith old bummer smith that's what's the matter with him melis smith and i'm coming to school well said the master accustomed to be thwarted and opposed often wantonly and cruelly for no other purpose than to excite the violent impulses of her nature the master's phlegm evidently took her by surprise she stopped she began to twist a lock of her hair between her fingers and the rigid line of upper lip drawn over the wicked little teeth relaxed and quivered slightly then her eyes dropped and something like a blush struggled up to her cheek and tried to assert itself through the splashes of redder soil and the sunburn of years suddenly she threw herself forward calling on god to strike her dead and fell quite weak and helpless with her face on the master's desk crying and sobbing as if her heart would break the master lifted her gently and waited for the paroxysm to pass when with face still averted she was repeating between her sobs the mea culpa of childish penitence that she'd be good she didn't mean to etc it came to him to ask her why she had left sabbath school why had she left sabbath school why oh yes what did he mcsnagley want to tell her she was wicked for what did he tell her that god hated her for if god hated her what did she want to go to sabbath school for she didn't want to be beholden to anybody who hated her had she told mcsnagley this yes she said the master laughed it was a hearty laugh and echoed so oddly in the little schoolhouse and seemed so inconsistent and discordant with the sighing of the pines without 
that he shortly corrected himself with a sigh. The sigh was quite as sincere in its way, however, and after a moment of serious silence he asked about her father. Her father? What father? Whose father? What had he ever done for her? Why did the girls hate her? Come now, what made the folks say, Old Bummer Smith's Melis, when she passed? Yes, oh yes, she wished he was dead. She was dead. Everybody was dead. And her sobs broke forth anew. The master then, leaning over her, told her as well as he could what you or I might have said after hearing such unnatural theories from childish lips, only bearing in mind, perhaps better than you or I, the unnatural facts of her ragged dress, her bleeding feet, and the omnipresent shadow of her drunken father. Then, raising her to her feet, he wrapped his shawl around her, and bidding her come early in the morning, he walked with her down the road. There he bade her good night. The moon shone brightly on the narrow path before them. He stood and watched the bent little figure as it staggered down the road, and waited until it had passed the little graveyard and reached the curve of the hill, where it turned and stood for a moment, a mere atom of suffering outlined against the far-off patient stars. Then he went back to his work. But the lines of the copy-book thereafter faded into long parallels of never-ending road, over which childish figures seemed to pass sobbing and crying into the night. Then, the little schoolhouse seeming lonelier than before, he shut the door and went home. The next morning, Melis came to school. Her face had been washed, and her coarse black hair bore evidence of recent struggles with the comb, in which both had evidently suffered. The old defiant look shone occasionally in her eyes, but her manner was tamer and more subdued. Then began a series of little trials and self-sacrifices, in which master and pupil bore an equal part, and which increased the confidence and sympathy between them. Although obedient under the master's eye, at times during recess, if thwarted or stung by a fancied slight, Melis would rage in ungovernable fury, and many a palpitating young savage, finding himself matched with his own weapons of torment, would seek the master with torn jacket and scratched face, and complaints of the dreadful Melis. There was a serious division among the townspeople on the subject, some threatening to withdraw their children from such evil companionship, and others as warmly upholding the course of the master in his work of reclamation. Meanwhile, with a steady persistence that seemed quite astonishing to him on looking back afterward, the master drew Melis gradually out of the shadow of her past life, as though it were but her natural progress down the narrow path on which he had set her feet the moonlit night of their first meeting. Remembering the experience of the evangelical McSnagley, he carefully avoided that rock of ages on which that unskillful pilot had shipwrecked her young faith. 
But if, in the course of her reading, she chanced to stumble upon those few words which have lifted such as she above the level of the older, the wiser, and the more prudent, if she learned something of a faith that is symbolized by suffering and the old light softened in her eyes, it did not take the shape of a lesson. A few of the plainer people had made up a little sum by which the ragged Melis was enabled to assume the garments of respect and civilization. And often a rough shake of the hand and words of homely commendation from a red-shirted and burly figure sent a glow to the cheek of the young master and set him to thinking if it was altogether deserved. Three months had passed from the time of their first meeting, and the master was sitting late one evening over the moral and sententious copies, when there came a tap at the door, and again Melis stood before him. She was neatly clad and clean-faced, and there was nothing perhaps but the long black hair and bright black eyes to remind him of his former apparition. "'Are you busy?' she asked. "'Can you come with me?' And on his signifying his readiness, in her old wilful way, she said, "'Come, then, quick!' They passed out of the door together and into the dark road. As they entered the town, the master asked her whither she was going. She replied, "'To see my father.' It was the first time he had heard her call him by that filial title, or indeed anything more than Old Smith or The Old Man. It was the first time in three months that she had spoken of him at all, and the master knew she had kept resolutely aloof from him since her great change. Satisfied from her manner that it was fruitless to question her purpose, he passively followed. In out-of-the-way places, low groggeries, restaurants, and saloons, in gambling hells and dance-houses, the master, preceded by Melis, came and went. In the reeking smoke and blasphemous outcries of low dens, the child, holding the master's hand, stood and anxiously gazed, seemingly unconscious of all in the one absorbing nature of her pursuit. Some of the revellers recognizing Melis called to the child to sing and dance for them, and would have forced liquor upon her but for the interference of the master. Others, recognizing him mutely, made way for them to pass. So an hour slipped by. Then the child whispered in his ear that there was a cabin on the other side of the creek crossed by the long flume where she thought he still might be. Thither they crossed, a toilsome half-hour's walk, but in vain. They were returning by the ditch at the abutment of the flume, gazing at the lights of the town on the opposite bank, when suddenly, sharply, a quick report rang out on the clear night air. The echoes caught it and carried it round and round Red Mountain, and set the dogs to barking all along the streams. Lights seemed to dance and move quickly on the outskirts of the town for a few moments. The stream rippled quite audibly beside them. A few stones loosened themselves from the hillside and splashed into the stream. 
A heavy wind seemed to surge the branches of the funereal pines, and then the silence seemed to fall thicker, heavier, and deadlier. The master turned toward Melis with an unconscious gesture of protection, but the child had gone. Oppressed by a strange fear, he ran quickly down the trail to the river's bed, and, jumping from boulder to boulder, reached the base of Red Mountain and the outskirts of the village. Midway of the crossing he looked up and held his breath in awe, for high above him on the narrow flume he saw the fluttering little figure of his late companion crossing swiftly in the darkness. He climbed the bank, and, guided by a few lights moving about a central point on the mountain, soon found himself breathless among a crowd of awe-stricken and sorrowful men. Out from among them the child appeared, and, taking the master's hand, led him silently before what seemed a ragged hole in the mountain. Her face was quite white, but her excited manner gone, and her look that of one to whom some long-expected event had at last happened, an expression that to the master, in his bewilderment, seemed almost like relief. The walls of the cavern were partly propped by decaying timbers. The child pointed to what appeared to be some ragged cast-off clothes left in the hole by the late occupant. The master approached nearer with his flaming dip and bent over them. It was Smith, already cold, with a pistol in his hand and a bullet in his heart, lying beside his empty pocket. End of Melis, Chapter One